following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. For a better segue, actually, than that, since today we are talking about the name of God. So, and Sarah and I, I was very delinquent, didn't have anything ready until like yesterday. So she had no idea that this is what we are going to be learning about today. First off, I want to welcome you to CCF, if you happen to be new here. Um, My name is Nate Ulrich. I'm the executive pastor at CCF. Uh, Tim is gone today, which is I would assume a lot of you are gone today. I told him we should probably start publishing who's preaching on any given Sunday, or it won't really be fair for for guys like me. But um, today, I I really want to... I want to tug at your heart a little bit today. I want to address the way that we address God. The way that we address Lord. Sovereign Lord. Yahweh. There was a story about a man, and he was, uh, he was out on his boat. He was taking a cruise. He was all by himself, loved to cruise, and he was in the Pacific Ocean. And one day, a huge storm came. The storm came, rocked the boat, and he eventually get, ended up getting tossed from the boat. And after three days at sea, he finally washed up on, a, on an abandoned island. He washed up on, onto this island, and he decided, okay, first off, survival. I've got I to find a place to sleep eat, shelter, water, things like that. And so he starts doing that. After five years of survival on this island, he had built himself essentially a miniature city. And when the rescuers finally found him and came, they came and they were, they were absolutely amazed at what he had done on this island. They said, can, can we have a tour? And so he brought him onto the island, you know, obviously in a big hurry to leave. And he said, yeah, let me take you for a tour. Here's my house, beautiful house, four bedrooms, two bathrooms, swimming pool out front. Over there's my grocery store. That's where I buy and sell, consequently, all of my groceries. Um, Over there is is the bank. That's where I do all of my banking. Um, Over there, you know, the laundry facilities. Um, All the people, all the rescuers were just in amazement at what this guy had created. And as they were walking through the village, they realized... Well, what's that building over there for? He said, oh, well, that's, that's where I go to church. Well, what's that building over there for? Oh, well, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> the reason I tell you that story today is to illustrate a point of contention in our modern-day church, and that is the sovereignty of God. This point of contention is not the sovereignty of God, I don't believe, itself. It's what we believe is the sovereignty of God. And this is where we draw the line. We talk about Arminian or Calvinist you know, pre-millennial, post-millennial. Let's, let's put God into boxes. Let's, let's decide what God thinks. Let's, let's put him into boxes that we can understand. And today, I really want to address that as, as being a key issue in our church. Not just this church, in the church in general. I want to address us putting God into boxes. So first off, let's start with Jacob and Esau, since that, that's where we currently stand. So if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 25... I'm going to go ahead and start with verse 27. 
As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game. Esau brought home, uh, Esau, he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home, but Re- Rebekah loved Jacob. One day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived from home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. Now I'd like you to go ahead and skip over to Genesis chapter 27. Verse 5. But Rebekah overheard that Isaac had said to his son Esau, So when Esau left to hunt for the wild game, he said to her son, Jacob, listen, I overheard your father say, lost my page, I overheard your father say to Esau, bring me some wild game and prepare me a delicious meal. Then I will bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Now my son, listen to me, do exactly as I tell you, go out to the flocks and bring me two fine young goats. I'll use them to prepare your father's favorite dish. Then take the food to your father so he can eat it and bless you before he dies. But look, Jacob replied to Rebekah, my, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and my skin is smooth. What if my father touches me? He'll see that I'm trying to trick him, and then he'll curse me instead of blessing me. Jacob and Esau are a wonderful example of trying to force God's hand. Of, I, I, Honestly, I don't know, in reading the scripture, it's unclear to me if Rebekah had told Jacob, that she would be the one to rule over Esau, but I'm getting the impression that either way, Rebecca was very interested in fulfilling this prophecy, that Jacob would rule over Esau. She was promised this, she was promised this while they were in the womb, and Rebecca took it into her own hands to say, look, I'm going to make this happen for you. This is going to be something that we're going to do together, it's going to be great fun, okay, you're going to go out, you're going to kill some stuff, you're going to bring it to your dad, he's going he's to bless you. Jacob had already stolen Esau's birth... Well, not really stolen. Convinced Esau to give it to him. It's not really stealing if they give it to you freely. Um, but Esau already gave him his birthright. And now he's trying to take his blessing. When I was reading this, um, I, I was trying to decide what we were going to talk about today. And uh, I was just really convicted that this was the scripture I was to preach. But at the same time, Tim just preached the scripture two weeks ago. And I didn't want to duplicate what that is. And so... Um, my wife can contest that this week has been a very long week for me trying to figure out why I'm spending time in the scripture. It's already been preached. It's already been preached. And over time, it really became clear to me as I went from subject to subject to subject that the point it all comes down to is the true sovereignty of God. Now, what does is, what is the sovereignty of God mean? Well, I, I know that based on Scripture, there's really only one thing that sets us apart from people. There's a couple of things. But one major thing that sets us apart from people that don't believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior is that 
we believe God is Yahweh Adonai, the big man on campus, the God. Not a God, the God. So knowing God as a sovereign Lord sets us apart from the world and binds us together as a church. Now, what does sovereign mean? I went and looked up, you know, good old trusty Webster's Dictionary, and it says that sovereign is one that exercises supreme, permanent authority, especially in a nation or other government unit, such as a king, a queen, other noble person, um, chief of state, ruler of a monarch, or a national governing council or committee. I said, okay, this, this can't be the extent of it. There's got to be something in here about God. So I kept going down. It says, self-governing, independent, as in a sovereign state. Still not what I wanted. A sovereign prince. Still not what I wanted. A sovereign virtue, which is compassion. Still not what I was looking for. A sovereign remedy. Still not what I was looking for. What I was looking for is my definition of sovereign, which is all-knowing, all-being, everything, big man on campus, does what he wants because he does it, because he knows what he wants to do, and because it's part of his character, God. That's what I think sovereign means. And by this definition, that's not the impression I get. And so as I'm reading this scripture, I'm really convicted that, that maybe we're just not getting the idea. Maybe we're, and I'm not getting the idea. This is, this is what I'm finding. So then I went, I said, okay, let's, let me look up the word God. What, is, what does God mean? According to the Webster's Dictionary, or the, um, yeah, the Webster's Dictionary, um, it means a supreme or ultimate reality, okay? Um, being perfect in power, wisdom, and goodness, who is worshipped as creator and ruler of the universe. Great, that's wonderful. That's, that's much closer to the definition I was looking at. But then I realized that our God is not just God, because so many other people see their gods as God. Our God is so much more than that. If we truly believe that our God is the one and true God, he's not just God. Because God is defined in so many different ways in our culture and our church. Unfortunately, I think the church in general has redefined God to mean somebody important. Somebody that we talk to, have some sort of relationship with. And that's pretty much the extent of it. So then I went and I did a word study on the names Lord and Lord, capital L, small case, O-R-D, and capital L-O-R-D. Okay, what does all this mean? This is what took up most of the week because I realized I was just opening a giant can of worms. But it turns out Lord, smaller letters, refers to the non-deity or the non... um, Yeah, essentially the non-deity God referred to in Scripture. It's not the, the Yahweh God, it's just God. You're referring to God. Now, sometimes that is in reference to the God that we know, but it isn't Yahweh God. It is God. But then as Scripture goes on and we get into the prophets, we start to see more and more Lord, capital L-O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D, which in a lot of ways can be translated Sovereign Lord. So then it goes back to the word Sovereign, which I still doesn't... So this is, this is the, the thing that I'm going on all week going, this is just not satisfying. I do not worship a God defined by people. I don't, I, that's not the God that I know. And I'm, I'm incredibly convicted by this. And so I, I search a little bit further. And I realize that I don't worship a God by title, God. I worship a God with the name God, Yahweh. It's one thing to have a title. It's another thing to have a name. I'm the executive pastor at CCF. What does that mean? I have responsibilities. I'm an administrator, essentially, is what that means. That, that tells me what I do, not who I am. By giving God the, God, the the word God and just calling him God, we're telling him, you're a God. Fantastic. You have the attributes of a God. 
by telling him you're a lord. Fantastic, you have the attributes of a lord. But are we telling him that he's a unique deity, a unique God, a lord, capital L-O-R-D, something that is uncompared in any other part of our world? Is that what we're telling him? Is that what we're living by? And this is where I started to get convicted. And so, in my regular um, personal devotions, I've been reading through Ezekiel. And it really became very, very clear to me that Ezekiel had something figured out that I didn't. Ezekiel has something that maybe Jacob and Esau hadn't figured out, that Rebecca and Isaac hadn't figured out, or maybe that they knew but then had forgotten, that Abraham had figured out but forgotten when he tried to sell off his wife, that Isaac had forgotten until he decided that he was going to lie about his wife that David had forgotten until he decided he was going to shun shun Absalom because he was disobedient. Maybe that Moses had remembered until he was asked to not strike the the rock, and he did anyway. So my premise for today is that I think we forget. I think we forget that we don't worship God. We worship Yahweh. We worship somebody with a name. Somebody with those characteristics packed into a name. My name, Nathan Ulrich, means something much, much, much more than executive pastor. Tim Dunham means something much, 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 much more than lead pastor. Your name means something way more than your title. Your title is a set of responsibilities. Your name packs culture, contexts, characteristics, Family, support, that's what your name packs. Your title means nothing. Before I moved out here, I worked at a place called the Evergreen Shipping Depot in college um, as kind of a clerk. I was technically the operations manager, which made me a glorified clerk, check counter person. And uh, I, I once asked my boss, I said, you know, I really like this job to look good on my resume. What, what title can I have? Can I have a good title? He said, Nate, titles don't cost me a thing. You can have whatever title you want. Well, then I realized that, well, that, I don't want just a title then. I want what comes along with a title. You look at, you know, the president, the king, what comes along with those titles, and, and you try, and you decide that those titles are what define those people. I finally decided that my title, get this, it was one of the most creative times in my life, I was going to be the supreme commander at the Evergreen Shipping Depot. That was my official title. I actually had a little marker, a little uh, plate made that said Supreme Commander Nate Ulrich. Yeah. Then my boss had one made that said Supreme Commander of the Supreme Commander, and that didn't really work out. But I realized the uselessness of titles if that's all they are. So what I want to challenge you today is I want to challenge you to recognize the name of God the culture, the context, the attributes, the characteristics, the history that makes up the name of Yahweh, not his title, Lord or God. Please go with me to Ezekiel, chapter 4. Chapter 4, Now, son of man, take a large clay brick and set it down in front of you. Then draw a map of the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem on it. Show the city under siege. Build a wall around it so no one can escape. Set up the enemy camp and surround the city with siege ramps and battering ramps. Then take an iron girdle 
griddle and place it between you and the city. Turn toward the city and demonstrate how harsh the siege will be against Jerusalem. This will be a warning to the people of Israel. Now lie on your left side and place the sins of Israel on yourself. You are to bear their sins for the number of days you lie there on your side. I'm requiring you to bear Israel's sins for 390 days. One day for each year of their sin. After that, turn over and lie on your right side for 40 days. One day for each year of Judah's sin. Meanwhile, keep staring at the siege of Jerusalem. Lie there with your arm bared and prophesy her destruction. I will tie you up with ropes so you don't so you won't be able to turn from side to side until the days of your siege have been completed. Now go and get some wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, emmer wheat and mix them together in a storage jar. Use them to make bread for yourself during the 390 days you'll be lying on your side. Ration this out to yourself, 8 ounces of food each day and eat it at set times. Then measure out a jar, a jar of water for each day and drink it at set times. Prepare and eat this food as you would barley cakes while all the people are watching. Bake it over a fire using dried human dung as fuel and then eat the bread. Then the Lord said, This is how Israel will eat defiled bread in the Gentile lands to which I have banished them. Then I said, O oh, sovereign Lord, must I be defiled using human dung? For I have never been defiled before. From the time I was a child until now, I have never eaten any animal that died of sickness or was killed by other animals. I've never eaten any meat forbidden by the law. All right, the Lord said, you may bake your bread with cow dung instead of human dung. Then he told me, son of man, I will make food very scarce in Jerusalem. It will be weighed out with great care and eaten fruitfully. The water will be rationed out drop by drop and the people will drink it with, with dismay. Lacking food and water, people will look at one another in terror and they will waste away under their punishment. I want to draw Ezekiel as kind of a parallel to Jacob and Esau. Whereas Jacob and Esau had a promise from God, they decided they were going to force God's hand. Rebecca decided they were going to force God's hand. It wasn't soon enough. God's timing wasn't soon enough. It wasn't when they wanted it. They're going to push it. They're going to, they're going to do that. And that's pretty much when I've looked back through Scripture and seen conflict in Scripture. It's because we wouldn't wait. It's because we had a promise from God that we couldn't wait for. It wasn't because God didn't promise us or God has ever not come through on a promise, but because he promised us something and we just wouldn't wait. With Ezekiel, he was given very, very specific instructions. Lay on your right side for 390 days, lay on your left side for 40 days. That's a very, 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 very long time. If any of you have ever spent any time in nursing care or anything, you understand the whole idea of bed sores, um, just laying for a long period of time. It's really not healthy. And then on top of that, you've got to bake your own bread and use human dung. To Ezekiel's wonderful luck, we'll say that he you know, told God, please don't make me do that. And God said, okay, you can use cow dung. How fantastic. Ezekiel, I'm sure, was jumping for joy at the time. But then when you go on to read the story, you'll find out that Ezekiel obeyed. Ezekiel obeyed. And that's what it says over and over and over again in Scripture. Throughout Ezekiel, Ezekiel got a message from God, from the Sovereign Lord, Adonai Yahweh, and then he obeyed. Now if we look at this this name throughout Scripture, um, we find that it's used quite a few times. Um, 
but it's used most by Ezekiel. 200, 220 plus times in Ezekiel does he refer to God as Yahweh. The ineffable name of God, the one that shall not be said so that they don't misuse it. Ezekiel got it. Ezekiel was obedient. And I think Ezekiel was obedient because he understood who he was working for. He wasn't, under, he wasn't working for God title. He was working for the ultimate being in the earth. He was working for somebody that he could not question. And as we see, and we go through this story, and you see Ezekiel does what he needs to do for 390 days, for 40 days, bakes his bread. Um, then later on in chapter 5, he's told to cut all of his hair, spread it into the wind, and show how God will spread out the people. In chapter 12, it says, pack your things as though you are in exile. Literally, dig a hole in the side of your home and crawl through it with all your stuff. Dig a hole inside of your home. This, it, I don't know about you, but... What? Going on. Signs of the cooking pot. Ezekiel 24. Cook meat and bones together. Make a big, huge deal out of it. Talk about how the, 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 the way the meat has been defiled cannot be washed from that pot because the bones and the meat were cooked together. And then going on, still even yet, later on in chapter 24, God tells him, you're going to lose the thing that's absolutely most precious to you in life. And I'm going to ask you not to mourn. You will not mourn. You will not bury. You will just take it. Ezekiel goes out, preaches the message. The next morning, he finds his wife dead. Ezekiel did exactly what God told him. He did not mourn. He did not bury her. And he preached a message from that, telling the people that this is how I'm going to treat you because this is how you've treated me. And Ezekiel just goes on with his day. This is Ezekiel's life. Now, if we were to take him and put him in modern context, the guy's a loon. Crazy. Digging holes in his house, preaching things that just doom and destruction. You know what I think of when I, when I try and picture Ezekiel? Have you ever been to a, a professional baseball game, and a lot of times there's a guy out there by the corner holding his big sign, you know, the time is coming, the end is near, you know, he's standing on his little pedestal and he's preaching. That's the idea that I get of Ezekiel. When, when I try and picture him. The guy that's literally digging a hole in the side of his house that probably cost everything he owns. It is his possession. That's it. His home is everything. And he's going to dig a hole in the side of it and then ultimately just let his wife go and not even be mourned because he trusts God. He trusts Yahweh more than anything. And throughout all of Ezekiel... He refers to him by his name, not his title. And so what I'm starting to realize is maybe we just don't get it. Maybe we just don't get the name. Maybe we, we're, we're just here for the title. We're never going to understand what his name truly means. In fact, there's... there's hundreds of disagreements about Yah- what Yahweh really means and where it came from and really was it a, you know, a Canaanite god or was it who knows what. People are going to disagree over these things forever. But the point is, is what does Yahweh's name mean to us? When you think of somebody important in your life, somebody that's truly influenced you, do you give them a generic title 
Or do you know them by name? There's lots of things about God that we're not going to understand. I'm never going to be able to draw a giant iron stake down the middle of the argument of, of uh, Calvinist versus Arminian and this versus that and premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, whatever. What it comes down to is God knows. And sometimes we just have to say, God knows. And I know on a daily basis I find myself forgetting this. When I sit down and I realize, hey, we don't have any more money. This is difficult. This is hard. Car's broken. God knows. God knows how that's going to work. Another thing that I also know from looking through Ezekiel's life is that Yahweh will not be mocked. His name will not be mocked. Galatians chapter 7 says, Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. God will not be mocked. Yahweh, his name, will not be mocked. He will not put up with it. And eventually judgment's coming, and it has come in the past. We had the flood, and we will have revelations. And at the same time here, he passed out another judgment. He just took the people group, totally disenfranchised them all together, spread them, spread them in the wind. Said, if you're not going to depend on me, if you won't realize who I am, then I'm going to take some drastic measures to help you, help you realize it. God will not be mocked. And we are told here that because of that, there is judgment coming. And our job, for those of us that claim to understand the name of God, that he is Yahweh and not just Lord, our job is to make sure that we preach that. That he is an ultimate being that can do anything. I can't tell you how many times I've had discussions with people and they said, well, God wouldn't do that. Unless it's against his character, he can do anything. We don't think big enough. We're out here on the mission field. I know what it's like to be out here on the mission field and to, to not know what to think for. How big do you pray? How big is ridiculous when you're praying? At what point in time do you realize God can't do it? I know that for myself, this is kind of a daily practice for me at the office. I go into the office. Tim says, I've got a fantastic idea. I say... Wonderful, let's put together a plan. Tim says, mm, yes, we'll put together a plan, but we've got to get started because I'm passionate about this. this is something we've got to do because he's just given this passion. And I sit there and I go, God, he can do this, but let me put together a plan. And I find myself catching up with Tim, which is fantastic because he's 10 feet ahead of me at all times just going, doing the ministry of God and I'm constantly catching up with him. And it's my job to, to make sure there's a plan eventually but not to slow down the work of God. It's not my job to drag my feet. It's not my job to say God can't do this, that, or the other thing. It's not my God to say that there can't be a house church in every little tiny bit of Esau. 
It's not my job to say that we can't take two million orphans and put them in loving homes. It is absolutely not my job to say that there can't be churches all over Thailand that are doing their own ministry. It is not my job to say that. It is my job to make it happen in the best way that God has given me the gifts to do that. And I find at a certain point, there's a ceiling where I can no longer go. And God has to come the other direction. And He has to pull us out eventually. God will not be mocked. And there's a very, very high standard. Ezekiel tirelessly, endlessly preaches this to his own rebuke, to his own humiliation, to his own poverty, to the death of his own wife. He preaches this. Ezekiel gets it. And he calls God by his name because he gets his name, not his title. So what happens when we reject who Yahweh really is? In Ezekiel 33, actually I'm just going to go ahead and read that. I'm just going to leave that down there. I'm going to keep those though. Ezekiel 33:21 On January 8th, during the 12th year of our captivity, a survivor from Jerusalem came to me and said, "The city has fallen. The previous evening the Lord had taken hold of me and given me back my voice, so I was able to speak to this man when he arrived the next morning." Fast forward 600 years into the future, Christ is crucified. Fast forward who knows how many thousands of years into the future after that, Christ returns, judgment happens again. There will be judgment. There absolutely will be. Do I know how? Do I know when it's going to come? Do I know who's going to be raptured first, second, third, fourth, whether my dog's going with me? Do I know any of these things? Without a shadow of a doubt, I know them because God says, this is the way that it is. End of story. He doesn't explain to me all the details because he doesn't necessarily want me to know all of the details. I don't know why. And we as a church are going to debate for years, hundreds of years, we have debated for hundreds of years over what God can and cannot do rather than God is capable, therefore he can. When we reject Yahweh or we force his hand we only bring death and destruction. Look at Jacob and Esau. Verses 25 on again in 27. They force God's hand. It brings conflict for hundreds of years to these families. Look at Cain and Abel. One of them ends up dead. Look at Moses. He doesn't even get to go into the promised land. And then we come to once again Christ who we eventually, or who eventually in this time frame, came and paid the sins for all of us. Fortunately, there's help. Amen? Because I know that on a daily basis, preparing for the sermon and probably every day after this, regardless of the words that come out of my mouth and what I want to believe, I know that I'm going to struggle with this. 
I know that I'm going to struggle with putting God in a box and saying He can or can't. And I know that's going to be something I'm going to have to deal with. And I think we as a church need to deal with that as a community. And fortunately, there is salvation from that. Ezekiel 37. I love this. What a great picture. The Lord took hold of me, and I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. He led me all around among the bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. Then he asked me, Son of man, can these bones become living people again? I love his answer. Okay? This right here, model of how we should answer things. Okay? Listen, tune in. If you're not listening, if you're falling asleep, this right here is important. O sovereign Lord, you alone know the answer to that. Okay? If we could all just repeat that daily in our lives, I think we'd be in a much better place. He's asking him, literally, can these bones come back to life again? I know if I was standing there, I would probably say, come on, God, really? This is, really? And he would say, of course I can. He'd make it happen anyway, and then I would be transformed in an amazing way. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am going to put breath into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I spoke this message just as he told me. Suddenly as I spoke, there was a rattling noise all across the valley. The bones of each body came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons. Then as I watched, muscles and flesh formed over the bones and skin formed to cover their bodies. But they still had no breath in them. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to the wind. Son of man, speak a prophetic message and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath from the four winds, breathe into these dead bodies so they may live again. So I spoke the message, and as he commanded me, the breath came into their bodies, and they all came to life and stood up on their feet, a great army. You know what really sticks out to me in this? Why why in this vision did God require Ezekiel to say the words? Why didn't God just bring him there and say the words himself and Ezekiel watch it happen? Ezekiel was part of it. And it leads me to believe that God wants us to be part of his ministry. It leads me to believe that we need to be faithful, not so that God can repeat his words, but so that we can repeat his words, so that we can have messages to the people. That's why we're here. Because we want to be part of it. Could God do it without us? You betcha. Could we all go home and His will will still happen? Absolutely. Is it great to be here being a piece of the puzzle? Yes. And every day, if we choose to struggle with this, if we choose to say, God, Yahweh, Lord, Adonai, Yahweh, only you know the answer to that. If we choose that, then our ministry can just be so much more than what it is by ourselves. So much more. Because it becomes not a ministry of us, it becomes a ministry of God, using us in conjunction with each other as a body, as tools. He can breathe life into us without any problem whatsoever. That's a wonderful, wonderful picture. If we go through the Roman road of 
you know, for all sin fallen short of the glory, the gift of God is eternal life for those who believe, John 3.16, blah, blah, blah. Go through all those things. It shows us all impossible things. Impossible. Impossible. But how many of you believe them? Anybody? How many of you believe those impossible things? How many people live their daily lives as they believe those, po- those impossible things? And that's the true question that I want to ask you today. Because it's just been driving me up the wall this week. It's just been, ugh. And I have a feeling that this is just going to keep going on. And I don't want to suffer by myself, so I'm asking you to suffer with me. Are you living as though you know God with a name, a person, a being, somebody that's personal, somebody that wants you to know them, somebody that has a business card that says Yahweh on it, or somebody that has a business card that has a generic title that just says, hey, I'm one of those gods that you guys talk about. I find it an interesting concept that the whole idea of the, the, the Jewish people back in the day not mentioning the name Yahweh. I think that was a great idea. Because they didn't want to misuse it. They didn't want to misuse it. Look at our modern day. What does God mean to the modern day person? What does Lord mean to the modern day person? We have absolutely misused those terms. Absolutely. And we have made them into virtually nothing. We've made them meaningless. We've put them in a box. We've put them in what we can define them as. And I think that's one thing that the Jewish people got was we're not going to mention his name because we can't define who he is. And we can't use it in a glorifying context that isn't going to do it disservice. So we're just not going to use it. We're not going to say it. And I just think that was a a cool thing. To think that there was something so big and so perfect about God's name that they would ruin it just by using it. When he breathes life, life into us, we have the chance to use that name now. When Christ came and died on the cross, we were given the Holy Spirit, and we were given a method of wielding the power of Yahweh. We can use that name because we have been transformed. We can use that name because it means something to us, because we are a product of that name. Our lives are a testimony of that name. Think of what that name means. Yahweh. Perfectly compassionate. Perfectly loving. Perfectly gracious. All-knowing. Beginning and the end. Perfectly perfect. Perfectly God. Perfectly Lord. Perfect. That's what that name means. So I have a challenge for you. Is there a difference between you believing that the name exists and the way that you live? And if so, what are you going to do about it? For me, it's not going to be a pleasant process. It's going to be very unfortunate. It's going to require me a lot of humility that I don't feel like I have. And that's what limits us, is that humility that we as humans are going to give up all of the control of our lives 
and just hand it over to God and say, you know. I don't know, God. That's only something you can answer. Are you going to live your ministry that way? I'm not asking you to turn into yes people, that just say yes all the time to everything and burn yourselves out. But what I am asking you is to dream. Can you remember back when you were a brand new Christian and it was all kind of exciting? And I know for me, I was a brand new Christian and then later on it got exciting. But remember that exciting time where things were new, where we were just happy to just like read the Bible and just go, that was so cool. Were we to look at our lives and say, God, you're awesome because you love me and I'm a horrible human being. Do you remember that time in your life where you, where you kind of bridged that gap and you found the goodness of God? I want to challenge you as professional missionaries to go back to that time. As professional missionaries, people that do this for a living, I'm going to ask you to lay aside your title of professional missionary and make it part of your name. Because that's what we're given. We're given God's name to freely use. I want to challenge you to do that. This week when you're sitting in your office and you have a meeting, a planning meeting, a budget meeting, just a whatever type of meeting, you're meeting with somebody, you're in a mentorship relationship, be willing to say, I don't know. But God does. And He's going to take care of it. Because if you look at the turnout, the difference between the way that Jacob and Esau lived their lives, and Rebecca, and Isaac, and Abraham, and Moses, and all these people that believed up and to a point, if you look at what they contributed to the conflict and dissolution of the Jewish people, versus what somebody like Ezekiel, that tirelessly believed in the name of God, if you look what he contribute, contributed, I'd like to be more like Ezekiel. I would hate to be Ezekiel. I'd hate to get that message. But at the same time, to just live that purely in the name of God, that's something. I'll tell you what, that is... You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Truly something. Let's pray.